This is the day that the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it. It is so good to see the people, some of the people of God, back in the house of God as we worship corporately together on this Lord's Day. For those of you who are unaware, my name is Brandon Reddick, and I have the privilege of being the lead servant here at the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. If we've been in a series now in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you have your Bibles, I would ask that you would turn to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. As you are turning there, we are at a point in the Gospel of Matthew where you're going to see Matthew do some things intentionally from a literary standpoint. This, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, this portion of scripture from Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 7 is called a discourse. After that, that discourse will be followed by narrative elements beginning in Matthew chapter 8 where we will hear about the ministry of Christ and his healings and uh, what have you, the casting out of demons. And then after that, we'll go back to more discourse. And so we begin this discourse element beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 7, that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to be to stand and honor and reverence to God's holy word here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. I'll be re reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along on our screens if you don't have a copy of your own. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We live in a time now in Western civilization where we have more than we've ever had before. We have more wealth than we've ever had before. We have more assets than we've ever had before. We've had, we have more food than we've ever had before. We have more recreation than we've ever had before. We can go skiing, play disc golf, and all sorts of things. We have more medicine and treatments than we've ever had before. You can look however you want to, more than, you, than we ever could before through plastic surgery and other things. We're more connected than we've ever been before with cell phones and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and every other thing that's out there or being made up at this moment. <laughs> we have all these first world benefits, but yet we still live in a day and time where people are most unhappy. If we have all these first world benefits and we are still unhappy, could it be that maybe we we're misinformed on what true happiness really is? Today we see in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turned this worldly concept of happiness on, his, on its head. And he redefines for the people of God what true happiness really is. And so time and time again, as we just read, we see Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. And so obviously, it is clear just from repetition that one of the things or main points of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is being blessed. 
Other, 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 other translations translate that word blessed as happy. Others translate it fortunate. But the problem with the word happy, not that it's a wrong translation, it is just that in English language, it could send the wrong message because happiness is based on happenings. It's a feeling that comes and goes. The problem with the translation of the word blessed as fortunate is that in our Western vocabulary, it can be seen as something that is that comes about by luck or chance. And so I prefer the as we think about this term blessed, is I think I prefer the term privilege. Privileged are the poor in spirit. Or, or, or approved of God are the poor in spirit. This word in the Greek, makarios in the Greek, it, it, it literally, it, it was used for the gods because they were in a, in a, in, in a way content because they had no cares in the world. And so now Jesus takes this thought of this word, this concept of, of Makarios, and he applies it now in this sermon to the people of God. And he begins, there's two major portions in our reading today. And the first thing I want us to look at is kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics. Now, as we look at these verses, there's something that Matthew does. And I point these things out, not to show you how smart I am, because I know y'all know how smart I am. <laughs> it's not that funny, Ella. Calm down. <laughs> but I want to teach you some tricks and some, some ways to really study the Bible and try to get the message or the point of what's happening in a passage. Two things happen and are repeated in verses three through 10. We see God say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse three, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what is called an inclusio. Think of inclusio as a literary sandwich. So you've got the outside and you've got the bottom, the top and the bottom and everything in the middle is about what's on the top and the bottom. So then, these beatitudes are about the kingdom of heaven. More specifically, they tell us what life in the kingdom of heaven is really about. And so these verses highlight virtues, values, and states of being that, by the way, Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures would not affirm. They did not affirm being poor in spirit or being meek. Those were seen as virtues of weakness. And so what Jesus then teaches us in this Sermon on the Mount is how to live counterculturally. Oh, 
and what a needed word for the church of God in 2021. We need to be reminded by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we are not to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. All people of God, isn't it a shame and a concern when the people of God look just like the world? Hmm. So, let's dive now into these beatitudes, these, these blessings, these privileged states. And I simply want to go line by line, explain them briefly, and then we'll see the significance for us this morning. Now, before we get into the Beatitudes, for us to really understand what Jesus is doing here, we actually have to go back to, guess, the Old Testament. That's what Matthew is consistently doing and has done up until this point. It's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah and King. And so when Jesus preaches this, this sermon, I'm convinced, as are most preachers and commentators, that he has Isaiah chapter 61 in mind. Why is that? Turn there, turn there. It'll be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning with verses number 1 and 2. Here is how it reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of God to comfort all who mourn. If we go into the book of Luke, Jesus says, I am that person who has been anointed to preach the good news. And he quotes Isaiah 61. And so here in Isaiah 61, we see some of the same words, some of the same themes that we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, such as mourn, poor, righteousness. So let's look at this first one. Verse number three of Matthew chapter five. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in the Old Testament are often identified as the people of God because they are poor not just because of their financial situation, but because of what poverty has taught them. Poverty has taught the poor to be wholly dependent upon God since they don't have the resources to provide for themselves. Thus, the poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit know that they have nothing to offer God that will make them worthy to be in his presence. The poor in spirit know their need for God. They know that they are spiritual beggars. And so to those who know that they are poor in spirit, 
He said, Jesus says, you are blessed. You are privileged. You are approved by God because to you belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me make sure we're all on the same page. My understanding of this Sermon on the Mount is that these are not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. Remember, Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus went up on a mount and he spoke to his disciples. They were already his disciples. Now, they didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was or what uh, uh, this new covenant lifestyle looked like, but they were already followers of Christ. And so I'm convinced that these are people, Jesus is now saying, since you are now the people of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, here is how life, some of the, you will experience the blessings of the kingdom in the present, but they will fully come when God establishes the kingdom here on earth forever. And so when he says that those who are poor in spirit to them belong the kingdom of heaven, he's saying that those who are wholly dependent on God for salvation and deliverance are those who are actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, beloved, doesn't belong to the rich in merit. It is not to those who have a lot to offer God. It is not to those who think that they have a seat in the kingdom or deserve a seat in the kingdom because they come to church every Sunday or log in every Sunday or they tithe or give faithfully every week or because they pray and they follow the church reading plan. It's not to those who belong to the kingdom, but to those who know to, 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 I have nothing to bring to you, Lord. So the poor in spirit are those who would echo the sentiment of the hymn writer who said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the attitude of the poor in spirit. Let's keep moving. Verse number four. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What would lead the people of God to mourn? Oftentimes, in my experience, this verse is often on the back of the programs when I go to funerals. And there is a sense in which that may be applicable. Others may think that the mourning here has to do over social sins of the world, injustice in all of its forms. But I'm convinced that Jesus is dealing with something deeper here. Remember that earlier we read Isaiah chapter number 61, verses 1 and 2. And, then, and we learned that the anointed preacher said that one of his responsibilities, res, responsibilities was to comfort all who mourn. Why would the audience of the book of Isaiah be in mourning? Because they were in exile. They were far from home. Well, deep next question, why were they in exile? Because of their sin and unfaithfulness to God. Remember, we just heard Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17, I believe, says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that have to do with mourning? Mourning, those who mourn in this context are those who are mourning over their sin. 
They mourn because they see how horrific their sin is before a holy God. They mourn over their wretchedness. And this is the mourning of the repentant who have godly sorrow and shame for their sin. Beloved, it's sad to me that I'm convinced that the church doesn't mourn over our sin very much anymore. There used to be a day in time back, back in the day where there were certain pews or benches that were reserved for certain individuals. They were called the mourner's bench. Now, 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 I'm not politicking this morning to get those pews back in here. We need every seat we can get. But it highlights how serious the church at one point took sin. We don't mourn over sin like we used to. We, we would rather excuse our sin. We, we would rather excuse it by blaming it on our personality type. That's just my Enneagram number. Beloved, let me help you real quick. These personality tests and whatever they're called, they are there to make you aware of your sin tendencies. Not to excuse your sin. rather excuse our sin. We don't mourn our sin. We even, we don't even, and we even, we've gotten so cozy with sin that we joke about our sin now. When I watch TV and I watch too much, (laughs) but when I'm watching TV, there's a commercial that that makes me cringe every time it comes on. (laughs) Me too. And it's about a love story between two people meeting and falling in love. The woman is named 2020. Oh, you know. Yeah, y'all watch too much TV too. Thank you for telling on yourselves. Confess your sin. That's what it looked like. Good, good, good. And the man is called Satan. And I cringe because Satan is no reason to joke. He's the first sinner. The father of lies. He's our greatest enemy. We find sin funny these days. Beloved, excusing sin, joking about sin, ought not be so among the people of God. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And beloved, here are some introspective questions for us this morning. Does your sin cause you to weep? Does it cause you to grieve because of how much you've offended a holy God? And Jesus promises to those who mourn that they will be comforted. On one hand, they'll be comforted because he will and has forgiven their sins because of his substitutionary death on the cross. That's what I'm looking for. 
All of their sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven as far as the east, east is from the west. But on the other hand, they will be comforted because one day there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more coronavirus. He's going to wipe away every tear. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek means to be gentle. Jesus likely, when he talks about being meek, has Psalm 37 verse 11 in mind, which says, and the meek shall inherit the land. In Psalm 37, the meek are contrasted to the wicked who prosper and have become prosperous by being forceful and oppressing the poor and the needy. But Psalm 37 says those wicked will one day be no more. However, the meek, those who are gentle, humble, patient, lowly, and oftentimes back in Old Testament context, the meek, the the lowly were those who didn't inherit any land. And so he says to those who are meek, they will actually inherit the land. They will receive an inheritance because one day the old heaven and the old earth will pass away and give way to a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, remember, 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 in the gospel of Matthew, righteousness primarily means doing God's will. In the Gospel of Matthew, righteousness primarily deals with doing God's will. It means to do what God expects of his people. It is to live in a way that God requires. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's because they hunger and thirst for doing God's will over their own will or the will of someone else. Notice, notice, notice though, friends, that the ones who are blessed or privileged are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look, okay, maybe y'all can't tell, but I get hungry often. It's something that keeps coming back. So so those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who are not satisfied with occasionally doing God's will. But they have a zeal or a passionate concern for doing his will all of the time. 
And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. Rather than being hungry and satisfied, they will be. This word literally means filled. To be satisfied means to be filled. Let me, I'm going to give y'all a glimpse into uh, 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 some of my family time uh, uh, back home. When we get together for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, I don't really go home for Easter anymore. Uh, any holiday. Pick one. Mainly Thanksgiving and Easter. We have a good old time. And what really makes Thanksgiving and Christmas really fun, not just being gathered together, but there's a lot of food. We love food. And some people in the family, they eat, and they eat, and they eat. And when they, they're done, they sit back in the chair, and they breathe, they breathe, because they're out of breath from eating so fast. And they say, I'm fat fool. The technical term is gluttony, but hey, fat fool. That's what I have in mind when I read this verse. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fat fool. They will be filled, satisfied. Now, 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 notice that it says, that they are filled. That's passive voice. They don't feel themselves, but are filled by someone else. And that's what we call a divine passive. That someone else is God. God gives those who hunger and thirst for righteousness the divine power and resources to live righteously. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are merciful are those who are compassionate and sympathetic. The merciful are those who embrace generosity and forgiveness. And we'll see Jesus teach more on this theme later on in the sermon when he teaches his disciples, rather than uh, uh, giving people or, or giving people eye for an eye, turn the other cheek. That's mercy. He'll say, give to beggars. That's mercy. And to those who are merciful, they will receive mercy. Now, now, let me make sure you understand something. This is not quid pro quo. This is not this for that. I'm convinced that what Jesus is saying is, remember, we started in verse 4, 7, chapter 4, verse 17, repent. Those who repent will give evidence of their repentance by being merciful. And because they are repentant, they will receive mercy. So those who are merciful receive mercy from others, but ultimately and most importantly, from God. Because he has compassion on them. He is forgiving towards them. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8, for they shall see God. Okay. I looked ahead, and let me tell you, my, I'm convinced that the pure in heart here is really contrasting the Pharisees. you got to remember, the Pharisees were pure in conduct. 
but they were not pure in heart. They conformed to the law in an external matter, but they were inwardly corrupt. They were ritually clean, but their hearts were as filthy as rags. They didn't commit the act of adultery, but they would lust in their heart. They didn't murder, but they will harbor anger in their heart. And Christ exposes them, or he will expose them, for not being pure in heart. And so Christ teaches his disciples that they are blessed when they are pure, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. Beloved, this beatitude is a direct attack and challenge on legalism. Legalism refers to those who try to be righteous by, by keeping rules just because they are the rules. But Jesus here, he's not after rule keeping. He's after heart transformation. And so he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. I'm reminded as I was reading this, I couldn't help but be reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, there it is, without which no one will see the Lord. So the pure in heart are those who are holy. Psalm 24 says, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord and go to his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. So the pure in heart are those who are holy. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, you can't see the Lord. So those who are pure in heart, those who are holy, will see the Lord in the sense that they will be in his presence forever. Also, when we think about seeing the Lord, we have to go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 3, which says, And they threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nation. That ain't the right verse. That's my fault. Revelation chapter 21. Let me pull it up. It happens. Revelation chapter 21. Verse 3 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. The pure in heart will see God because God will dwell among them. And they will have sweet fellowship and communion with God their father. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Beloved, let's make sure we read the text. Blessed are the peace who? Not peace lovers. Watch this, watch this. Not even peacekeepers. Blessed are the peace. Help me preach then. Jesus expects those who follow him to be peacemakers. And peacemakers are those who seek peace 
by seeking reconciliation, watch this, with one's own enemies or those they have offended. This is what Jesus will teach later on when he tells his disciples that if they are offering their gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is the heart of a peacemaker. Peacemakers are those who heal divisions rather than cause divisions. And can I just be transparent for a moment? This verse has been on my mind, especially the last couple of weeks, especially with what happened at our Capitol. My heart breaks and grieves over Christians. I'm talking about Christians who are sowing discord and division on social media. They continue to spread false allegations and unproven accusations. They would rather post about guns and taking back our country rather than being a peacemaker. Others who would normally be vocal about current events, I'm talking about those who normally are vocal about current events on social media, have remained silent. Beloved, the people of God are called to be peacemakers. That's the time where we stand up and we start bringing sides together. Not adding fuel to the fire. Blessed are the peacemakers. And we'll never be peacemakers if we're more committed to the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Libertarian Party, a president, a Supreme Court. It'll never happen if we're more committed to those things than the cause of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers also, oh, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit, are those who don't seek revenge. I'm one of those people where if I feel like you're trying to get over on me or you have gotten over on me, I want to get you. And then if y'all want me to be holy, I'll just say, Lord, go get them. Now, what's interesting is Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And he has to tell them because of what's coming in verse 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, rather than taking up arms against those who are, are persecuting you, be peacemakers. This is radical discipleship. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking reveals who we really are. Peacemaking reveals that we really are children of God. Because when we make peace, we bear the family resemblance. When we make peace, we look like our father. Because watch this, just like 
The, Jesus tells his disciples to go make peace, leave the gift at the altar, and go be reconciled. Those who have or uh, uh, have offended somebody are the ones, or who have been offended, are the ones who are to pursue peacemaking. Is that not what God did for us? When he's, he pursued us, he ran after us, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die our death, to take our punishment and our penalty upon himself. He says, when you make peace with others, you look like your daddy. Verse 10 and 11, and I'm almost done. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus here prepares his disciples for suffering. He says you will be persecuted physically and verbally. And Jesus says that even though you will be persecuted, you should consider yourself to be in a privileged position. Because to you belong the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for his sake are genuine citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And though the world will hate them on the earth, they can still rejoice because there's a great reward waiting for them in heaven. Beloved, this is just a devotional thought. Enduring suffering requires an internal mindset. He says, great is your reward in heaven. And oftentimes we struggle with suffering on earth because we don't have an eternal mindset. We have an earthly mindset. But for the people of God, God never wastes our pain. There is always purpose behind our pain. And so we have to have an eternal mindset. And if we don't have that eternal mindset, we will be despondent. We will be discouraged. We will be depressed. But if you suffer focusing on eternity, then your disposition and mindset will be like what Jesus said. So then, Jesus has taught us about the paradoxical good life. Jesus teaches his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is an upside down kingdom. Jesus says, what the world hates, I love. What the world hates and despises, heaven blesses and rewards. And so these virtues, these values are to be the norm for those who have repented and become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Finally, and I'll go fast, we move from kingdom ethics to kingdom influence, verses 13 through 16. Jesus now calls them to be a deliberate distinction from the norms of the rest of society. He tells them that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What does Jesus mean by these two metaphors? The salt of the earth. Salt was for preservation or to prevent decay or corruption. But it was also used for flavoring. Matter of fact, the, the people of God have become so silly and carnal that a man could divorce his wife for not salting his food. 
So Jesus here. So when we talk about preservation, preventing decay, and flavoring, my, I'm convinced that Jesus, what Jesus is focused here is on the aspect of flavoring. Because he says, if the salt has lost its taste or it becomes tasteless. Thus, if we're following this metaphor of salt to be that which provides flavor, Jesus is then saying that followers of Christ are those who bring a certain savor to the earth. See, when Christians are just like the world, the world remains bland. But when we are distinct in our lifestyle, we bring some saltiness to the world that it needs. Sometimes my son and I, when we're playing around, uh, he'll get frustrated with me and I, I learn from them that I can just say, you salty bro? And I think that's what we need to be asking one another as brothers and sisters of Christ. You salty, bro? You salty, sis? Or are you losing your flavor? Christians are the salt of the earth. We bring some flavor to it because, see, the world, as fun as they think it is, is actually rather bland because it has one main ingredient, sin. And so what Christians do is we salt the earth. We bring some flavor to it with our righteousness, with our joy, with our mercy, with our grace, with our peace. We bring some flavor to the thing. And Jesus says that if that salt becomes saltless, then salt is no good for anything but to be thrown out or trampled underfoot. Now, my scientific people are like, Sodium chloride is a stable compound. It doesn't become saltless, but it can become diluted. Believe it or not, one time I was making some greens and it was, let's just say, too flavorful. <laughs> and so I had to add something to that. I like, hmm, I'm going to add some water to it. I diluted it. Jesus says, when you take that as pure and mix it with impurities, it's diluted. It's no good for anything but to be thrown out and walked all over. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from England, said the story of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invari invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it first. So you want to be an attractional church? Be different. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, and we're done. Jesus then, by saying you are the light of the world, implicitly makes it clear that the world is in darkness. Because it's full of sin and iniquity. However, followers of Christ are the light of the world. Jesus says that no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bush. His point is that disciples of Christ are to let their light shine. So then how do we let our light shine? Jesus tells us, he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Good works are how we let our light shine. But pastor, what are good works? 
Ooh, y'all ask a question. Good works are actions that believers do in order to bring glory to our Father in heaven. Actions that believers do in order to bring glory to our Father in heaven. Good works are motivated by faith. And so what actions might this look like, Pastor? Jesus showed us in the sermon. He says, actions like being merciful, peacemaking, or what Jesus did at the end of chapter 4 when he healed every disease and affliction. And so, simple question, child of God. I guess two questions. Number one, you salty? And number two, is your light shining or is it dim? Does your life conform with the values and virtues preached by Jesus Christ in this sermon? There may be someone here today. You've heard all this talk about the kingdom of heaven. Here's the reality about kingdoms. There are two kingdoms ultimately in this world. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And you are either in one or the other. There is no middle ground. And those who are in the kingdom of darkness are destined to destruction. But to the, if you are destined for destruction, the good Lord has sent me this morning to provide to you some good news. I am the herald that comes before King Jesus to bring you good news that you can be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to remain destined for destruction. You can be saved, rescued, delivered from this kingdom of darkness and its destined destruction. But there's only one way there's only one bridge. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. By putting all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your confidence, all of your trust, all of your dependence on Jesus Christ and Him alone. Nothing else. Not being a good person, not doing good works. religious things but trusting in Jesus Christ by acknowledging your sinfulness and you are a sinner and you deserve the righteous wrath of God and you come crying what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God and Jesus has called on his people to declare loudly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ Here's the promise. You will be saved. You will have eternal life. You will become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven with all of its rights and privileges. So for somebody in this room or on this stream, your response first must be to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to come out of darkness, 
light of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will see the face of God. You will become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and have all the privileges that Jesus preached about here. For those of us who have already responded by faith, we hear clearly the Lord saying, be salt, be the light. We ought to have influence in the world, not just through how we vote, but how we act. Being salt and light is a matter of our witness being at stake. Come back, worship team. As they come, let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, what our hearts have felt. God, we pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Help the word that has been proclaimed penetrate our hearts and our minds. Help us to be convicted where we fall short. Touch those who need to be converted and come into the kingdom of heaven. Help us, God, to prize our citizenship of heaven. name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Let us sing.